new and adaptive physical education podcast listeners. I'm happy to present to you our 11th episode. It's been a little while and we're doing one today on nonprofits in the field of adaptive physical activity. We broke it up into two episodes because of the length and also because we're adding a little section to our episodes and hopefully I have a colleague that will be joining us in the next few episodes. But until then, uh, we're doing a what's new in history and adapted physical education and activity. That title might be a little deceiving because we are going to talk about disability history. It doesn't have to do with just physical activity, but it's going to pertain to some type of disability historical event. And I just thought this might be something fun to put on the pod. And today we're going to talk a little bit about sign language. And I just picked this kind of randomly, but I thought, you know, what is a disability that we haven't really talked about in the podcast? And I don't think we've talked about uh, deaf or hearing impaired people at all. Honestly, my experience with that population of people is limited. Uh, So I did some research and I'm trying to learn some sign language right now. It was pretty interesting. So I just thought I would share some of the facts that I found with all of you. Everyone knows what sign language is, ASL, American Sign Language, but you know, where does it come from? And where did it come from in America? Now, in America, it's been documented since 1541. It was uh, reported that the Plain Indians developed their own sign language to communicate between tribes, different languages. And I think this makes sense. Try to communicate with one another. Uh, we might do this with somebody from a different country as well. You know, some hand gestures to try to get something across. In the 19th century, a quote-unquote triangle of villages uh, created their own sign languages in New England. Uh, there was one in Massachusetts, one in New Hampshire, and one in Maine. And they started using it more and more, even by the hearing residents, whenever a deaf person was present. And so ASL, though, is thought to have originated in the American School for the Deaf, founded in Hartford, Connecticut, in 1817. Originally, It was known, though, as the American Asylum at Hartford for the education and instruction of the deaf and dumb. That does not sound very politically correct to me, but I'm happy that at least there was a first one made, although I might not like the uh, language for it. And it was founded by a Yale graduate. This graduate went on to go to Europe uh, on a quest to learn more deaf uh, pedagogy from different institutions throughout Europe since Europe had an older culture and had already had some sign languages developed for the deaf community. Um, And they eventually uh, convinced one of the uh, teachers uh, from one of the French institutes in Paris to come back to America to help him with the school. So uh, that's, and then the largest group of students during the seven the years of the school, um, the American School for the Deaf, were from those three communities that we talked talked about earlier. The largest one being the community that was from Martha's Vineyard from Massachusetts. The first teacher 
at the American School for the Deaf uh, taught using French Sign Language, which in itself had developed in a, a Paris School for the Deaf established back in 1755. And from this situation of language contact and learning the new American language, a new language emerged now known as ASL or American Sign Language. More schools for the deaf were founded after uh, ASD or American School for the Deaf and knowledge of American Sign Language spread rapidly into the schools. In addition, the rise of the deaf community organizations you know, helped to raise awareness of American Sign Language to where we know it now, where we have a lot of interpreters are readily available uh, for the most part, and it's a well-known thing, and a lot of people learn it, and we teach, you know, there's early education programs where they teach kids it. All right, we're going to switch gears back to a regular format, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of these nonprofits in adapted sports and adapted physical activity. We have three really great nonprofits in the field of adapted physical activity from throughout the country, and then we'll get started with the interview and the podcast. So uh, we have Beth Foster, who's a doctoral student with me. She'll be Dr. Beth Foster uh, next semester, and she's with Rise Adapted Sports. She's the program director, and which is this is uh, local uh, North Texas. Uh, some of the really cool sports they do is WCMX and rugby. And then we have Todd Turner and his brother Paul Turner, and they form Guts, which is a fitness-centered facility for people with disabilities, and they're from the Detroit area. And then we have Jeffrey Lee, who's the new president of Adapted Sports and Recreation Association from San Diego, California. And theirs is a variety of different sports um, to meet different people with different needs for people with disabilities. Uh, so let's get started with the interview. Good morning, good afternoon. This is What's New in Adapted Physical Education, and we're really, really excited to be here today, and welcome. All right, so I'm really interested in learning more about nonprofits in the field because there's not really a lot of opportunities out there for people with disabilities. Why, uh, why are you in existence? Why were you founded? Why did you join this organization or this field? So uh, the Adaptive Sports and Rec Association in San Diego actually grew out a long time ago, um, uh, 30 years ago or so. The Department of Therapeutic Recreation Services here in San Diego started a week-long wheelchair sports camp. Um, I have to confess, I think why they started that is probably lost to history at this point. Um, but they did have a, a, a department in the city, Still have we still have a, a department down here that uh, provides uh, recreation services for people with disabilities. So they started a wheelchair sports camp that uh, about 10 years ago led to the formation of the nonprofit Adaptive Sports and Rec Association, gave us some more abilities to, to do things like travel and compete with our teams. As to me personally, why I became part of it, um, I actually uh, have a disability, uh, was born with it, uh, grew up with it in an era when uh, kids, for the most part, didn't participate in sports if you had a disability. I also have a, two children with a disability, one uh, very minor, and then another one spends most of his time in a wheelchair. That's how I got involved with Adaptive Sports and Rec. He was, uh, we became aware of the organization. He started playing basketball for them, and we've since moved on into other sports as well. Uh, Todd and Paul? Uh, how did you get involved in 
this Guts organization, which is semi-new, last six, eight months. How did you guys, uh, you know, create this? Uh, I'm going to defer to Todd because uh, it's his daughter, which was the impetus behind uh, our initiative here. So, Todd, why don't you talk a little bit about Amarisa? Well, we were we started Guts, Paul and I. So it, uh, it is brand new, as you said. My daughter is seven years old. She has uh, Down syndrome and autism, so a dual diagnosis. And learning about her as she was born, realized that there were not a lot of things out there for kids with special needs. In fact, there was almost nothing. And what was out there, you really had to find. And it was, it was very difficult. So in talking to families with older kids, you know, they told us the same thing. There's nothing out there. But uh, my brother and I, who have, we've worked with kids, all different types of kids in sports, especially baseball, um, you know, had a love and passion for it. And, uh, you know, my background is uh, exercise science. And uh, we decided, you know, let's take what we love and open up uh, a facility. So we've been in the works trying to get this going for years. We're, we're finally uh, there. So that's kind of the short version of it. Beth, you are the program director for Rise Adaptive Sports. Now, how did you get involved with Rise Adaptive Sports? So Rise Adaptive Sports was started in uh, 2007, and it was based off of our uh, board chairman, Paul Gray, who was a businessman. And 1996, one of his, or 1969, one of his friends got in a car accident and became paralyzed, and he just realized that there were not programs available for him to still continue to be active. And so in 2007, Rise Adaptive Sports started, and our mission's um, primarily for those with physical disabilities, but the Rise stands for Recover, Inspire, Succeed, and Empower through Inclusive Adaptive Sports. And so I got involved with the organization probably about four years ago. I just started volunteering um, as a volunteer and helping out with the programs and just assisting all the athletes that came out. And slowly but surely, um, being an adaptive physical educator, I was asked to run a couple programs, and now I run all the sports programs that we offer. Very cool. Um, and so we have kind of a variety of you know uh, different facilities or places opened uh, with everyone here. And you know now I want to know from Texas to San Diego to Michigan, why do you believe it is important that people with disabilities get a variety of physical activity? in their daily lives? Yeah, I, you know, there's a, the answer to that question is, is whether or not you have a, a disability. Um, clearly being physically active and physically fit is, is important for all of us. You know, uh, get out there. I, I like to eat. Um, exercise is a good way to com combat against that. So I think, it's, I think it's good for everybody just to maintain overall good physical health. I, I think people, and, and like Beth, our organization is focused primarily on physical disabilities, but I think when you're looking at people who deal with physical disabilities, we at times tend to have more struggles with keeping, uh, keeping healthy and fit. And so being able to get out and play sports is important. Um, and the other, the other piece of that, and it's the same reason you know, you'd have your able-bodied kids go out and play baseball or football or do track and field, is there's a lot of, of life lessons and skills and uh, you know, discipline, focus, all those sorts of things that 
children and adults derive from participating in sports. And if it's important and valuable for an able-bodied individual to do that, it's, it's equally as important for a disabled uh, individual uh, to do that as well. Yeah, and to um, just piggyback off of Jeff, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I see in our athletes that come out is just this incredible sense of confidence and then independence and them starting to realize just through sports what more they can accomplish in their daily life. So we all know that there's physical benefits and health-related benefits to being, you know, physically active. But, you know, if we start looking in social-emotional aspects that these athletes get from just being able to be on a team or having, you know, friends that have the same disability, all of a sudden you see this increase of I'm not the only one and there's so many other things I can do. And they learn from each other too. I think it's a it's a great network for them to be able to talk about things that you wouldn't normally talk to other people about, and they get to really learn um, from each other and figure out exactly, you know, what they want to do with their life and have goals that they once forgot about. You know, there's definitely the social aspect, especially when you talk about a team sport. Um, you know, obviously it should be open to everyone. You know, one of our, uh, if you go to our landing page and on um, our website, it's, you know, we treat the individual first. It's quite a thing to overcome, you know, I'm, uh, in terms of, you know, looking at everyone the same way through the same glasses. And, uh, you know, uh, Jeff and Beth, I'm sure you can attest to getting, getting your state, your, your city, those, uh, those folks that uh, um, you're involved with to, to kind of see things the same way. So I know that it's, it's uh, unfortunately, it's not a starting line that everybody has. And uh, we're trying to change perceptions. Um, you know, so I, I don't mean to digress, but, um, you know, that we hope fitness is something that, it, you know, we can offer to everybody, but, uh, you know, especially special needs, because, you know, when you talk about, uh, kids that are born with, with down, you know, if you get them involved early and this is where Beth, you know, uh, Dr. Dale Ulrich at the university of Michigan, but, you know, um, all his research points to the fact that if we can engage them early, you know, four years old. Um, they'll stick with it. They'll stick it with it through their, you know, uh, post-pubescent years and that where, you know, the incidence of, um, of obesity will go down. So, yes, it's important for, for the general population, but, um, you know, even more so for these kids, you know, that uh, were, were born with a need. Yeah, my aunt, my aunt actually has Down syndrome, and so um, I saw the impact of her not getting any physical activity till. She was 30 and about 350 pounds and being 5'1". And so, you know, a change needed to happen. And thankfully, she now goes to the gym five week, five days a week. Um, she works out on her own. She's fully independent. And she's down to 110 pounds. And she just realizes how much better she feels about herself, how healthy she is. She cares about her eating. But she never had the opportunity when she was young. You know, they didn't know what to do really with her because she had Down syndrome. And so it was never an option for her to be physically active. And now it is. And I've seen a tremendous change in her, you know, all around. Um, if I may interject, Beth, I, I love that testimony. I'd love to know more because, I'm, you know, that speaks to what we're trying to do. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a great story. That's, yeah, really, really cool. Uh, in interesting information, you know, different perspectives, but it, at the same time, it sounds like everyone, you know, sees a lot of different benefits from, you know, getting people with disabilities more uh, physically active and more engaged in the community. So, you know, it's a well-known fact that 
uh, people with disabilities are not uh, as engaged in the community or don't have the same um, opportunities as uh, their typically developing peers. And so how do you each as your own nonprofit try to reach out to the, these communities? Yeah, I'll go first with that. That's one of our um, kind of our hardest obstacles to overcome. And we really do it through networking with our athletes that have come out just from um, their voice and going back to other nonprofits or other organizations and saying, hey, you can be physically active, come out here. Um, so the, for the most part, it's through um, the voice of our own athletes that have experienced our nonprofit. Uh, at the same time, social media is a great way to spread um, information. Right now, our organization just hit 20,000 uh, likes on Facebook. So that's huge for us that we're reaching now internationally. But it's funny because people think RISE is something that every state has, and it's only here in North Texas. It's just a unique nonprofit. So I just tell those people that are at different states to, you know, look in your state because there's probably some adaptive sport or nonprofit organization that will allow you to be physically active. And I think, you know, with Jeff and Todd, both of you showing that, you know, these organizations are available, but it is hard to reach out and be able to recruit participants to come out. And Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll say one of, that is also our, one of our largest challenges is, is reaching the disabled community. I, I, the you know, statistics are one in five people in the U.S. have some form of disability, and if you walk down the street, you're not going to see every fifth person with a disability, um, because for the most part, even in a very accessible area like, like San Diego, I think people don't tend to come out very much. They don't know what's available. Um, other challenges we've run into is with, uh, with HIPAA and privacy laws, it's, it's a bit more challenging to get into the clinics. We used to be able to advertise in like the spinal defects clinic at Children's Hospital here in San Diego, but now we can't because of privacy rules. So we, uh, we try to network with rehab centers, with doctors and physical therapists so that the, to get referrals you know, that want to refer their patients out to us for doing athletics. Uh, similarly, people, you know, kids that know one another, the athletes help recruit, social media. Um, we also, we're very fortunate in San Diego. We have uh, Challenge Athletes Foundation is here in San Diego, obviously a very big organization, and uh, people that work at Challenge Athletes are involved in some of our programs, and so there's a little cross-pollination, I guess, that, that goes on there as well. Um, but uh, it's, it's a challenge. It's, uh, I, on, my son is now trained that if he sees anybody in a wheelchair, he hands them one of my business cards. Um, and we go out and try to recruit them for, for one sport or another. And uh, that's worked, but it's amazing how many times I hear, we didn't, you know, I didn't know this thing existed. We get a new parent in with a, a child, and they had no idea. Yeah, that's the same thing we experience. It's, um, it's all the things that you hit on, you know, the social media, reaching out to the other organizations that advocate for the same, you know, the same demographic. Um, a big target for us are the schools. Um, you know, we're, we're going, uh, school by school in the different, you know, surrounding, uh, school districts, um, to let those, uh, teachers that deal with cognitive, uh, disabilities, um, or impairment, I should say, um, you know, we're offering them the opportunity to come and just bring their class, you know, cause they have, um, field trips and, um, you know, the schools, they have a very, very, uh, modest budget you know, just to get a bus, but to put all the, 
the kids, and it can be adults, post-secondary here is 18 to 26, um, and they, they come out. And what we try to do is have a, uh, an assortment of different activities with different instructors with different disciplines and just let them have fun with it. And they, you know, maybe 10 minutes at a time. So, you know, we have our work cut out for us, but the, the, the school system, um, systems, I should say, is, is, uh, is a more and more focus of us because we can hit a lot of, uh, a lot of people and, and introduce, you know, some of the programs we have that they can participate with. And, you know, like you guys know, the more grant money we get, the more families we help. And, uh, the other thing for us that works really well is, again, we have that annual wheelchair sports camp, which is a big enough event that we get some traction in the in uh, television and, and other news media outlets. And we get a lot of our new athletes through that program where they can come out and spend a week uh, trying all of our sports plus other sports that, that we currently don't have a year-round program for. But, you know, if we get enough interest, we could uh, look into adding that in. Um, that one's sort of the big of the, the events themselves sometimes uh, draw people in a little bit of that field of dreams thing I suppose sounds like uh, it's definitely a struggle for all of you to, to get them but it sounds like each one of you has some different strategies you're using to try to communicate with those populations um, myself uh, starting a camp abilities uh, it's always an issue trying to communicate with um, some of those communities because you don't always know where to find them. But schools, as you said, is always a, a good starting place to go start looking. Um, I have a question uh, about, uh, you know, what are your most popular events and what are your most popular sports that you have? Where it's a little bit different, um, Scott. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the fitness programs that we run. You know, the sports is something that I think we're going to evolve to, um, and I'll explain that. We, you know, we have um, different dance classes. One's autism movement therapy. You know, it's specifically designed for kids, uh, you know, four years of age on up. A sensations dance, which is for a number of different needs. Um, we have a Zumba class, and again, it's, it's, it's adapted to, to, to uh, you know, not just... Um, children and adults with special needs, but they're caregivers, they're siblings, you know, we get them involved. Um, we have a martial arts class, you know, again, these are fitness classes, um, you know, and, uh, not that we're not going to introduce, like we've had soccer camps and, you know, we're getting there, but we need to populate them. And once we run the camps, then we're going to have soccer leagues and, uh, you can see where this is going. But, um, again, a major aspect or component of our mission statement is to have fitness programs year-round um, for this demographic. So just like you can go down the street and there's LA Fitness and Fitness 19 and Planet Fitness and so on and so forth, um, that's what we are. And But we're more inclusive and we, we, we cater to that demographic. Um, our three main sports are for sure our water sports. We do adaptive water skiing uh, usually three times a week and then also on the weekend. And we also do tubing. So that's our largest summer sport. We're book solid for that. Um, all through the summer, we offer that. And then during non-summer months out here, our two um, most popular sport activities are wheelchair motocross. 
which is a new and up-and-coming adaptive sport. We're holding the third annual World Championships here in Texas in uh, February 25th, that weekend. But it's literally wheelchairs at a skate park, and they do flips and grinds and wheelies. And, I mean, we have three-year-olds that are in their wheelchairs going down skate ramps, and they just learn so many functional skills with that. So that's our probably one of our most popular sports. Uh, we have a skate park that we go to, and we have uh, specifically designed wheelchairs that are for the skate park that have shocks and then um, skate wheels as their casters. And then the other sport would be uh, quad rugby, just because who doesn't like to get into a wheelchair and get to slam into each other? And so, uh, you know, that one, when you bring out brothers and sisters of people that are have physical disabilities that are in wheelchairs, that's when everybody, you know, gets to be put on an equal uh, playing field and really enjoy themselves. So that's our second uh, probably most popular sport that we offer. Yeah, and and uh, out here in San Diego, or at least with Adaptive Sports and Rec, we're uh, we're looks like we're heading into a little bit of a transition. Our our historically most popular sport has been wheelchair basketball, uh, probably in part because it's it's uh, the oldest adapted sport around, at least that, that I'm aware of. I think it was created back in the 1940s. Um, but over the last couple of years, uh, for us, sled hockey has been uh, is probably our fastest growing sport. Um, similar to quad rugby, it's uh, I've watched the sled hockey team play before, and uh, they you get to go down a sled, get out on the ice, and run into people, um, and occasionally you hit a puck around. But uh, uh, so I think that yeah I think that leads to a lot of the popularity of it. But that is for us that's a very very rapidly growing growing sport. I love sled hockey. I got to say it's probably my favorite um, disability sport. I played it a few times and I have such a good time every time falling around and uh, yeah I love that and I I knew nothing about it until I saw it and then just I don't know it, it blew my mind. It was so cool playing that game. So now we're going to talk a little bit more about the the nonprofit uh, world a little bit more because a lot of our listeners, um, you know, they're either adaptive physical education teachers, uh, they might be parents, or they might be people that are really interested in uh, fitness, or people that are also part of nonprofits. Um, and so I want to know a little bit more about like what are some of your biggest challenges in being a nonprofit in a quote-unquote niche field um, where there's maybe not a lot more of you around? What what are the challenges? With us, I, the biggest challenge, of course, and this is for any nonprofit, is, is a, of course going to be fundraising um, and, and, getting the, and getting the funds in to run our programs. And, and one of the things, I think, in the adapted sports world that it makes it the fundraising piece sometimes a little bit more challenging than normal is, is we have you know, not insignificant overhead costs. We have to buy equipment and maintain equipment and have to um, acquire facilities, either, uh, you know, rent them or, or um, I know in uh, Arizona, uh, in Phoenix, they have a an entire sports facility for uh, adapted sports, which is really uh, quite a phenomenal setup. But for the rest of us, we have to rent facilities and whatnot. So fundraising is probably the biggest um, challenge and and for us in San Diego, we have a lot of different adapted sports groups out here that service different uh, um, aspects of the of the disabled community of challenge athletes who who fund individual athletes. We have uh, you know independent uh, wheelchair tennis groups and wheelchair uh, lacrosse groups and 
you know, and sometimes there, that leads to a little bit of, of fundraising confusion. People don't understand that each of us are, are servicing um, different communities and different groups within the, uh, the, the broader disabled um, community. I would have to agree. I mean, I think with any nonprofit, it's always get, obtaining grants, um, you know, finding where you can budget the money to make sure that your resources that you currently have are going into the right avenues to keep the equipment, you know, safe for all the participants and everything like that. And the second thing, you know, it's it's difficult to really, um, you know, I think part of our job is also education. Um, many people, you know, Jeff, like you mentioned, they live in the state, they live close and they have a disability and still don't know that we're here. And it's like, how, how have you missed us? So a lot of it is advocating, um, going to rehab hospitals. And, you know, I think as more as a nonprofit, the more you get people out and see what you're doing, the easier it is to bring money and find grants. And so once you get that establishment that, you know, this is a quality nonprofit organization that provides um, a lot of benefits to the participants and also to their families, then it's a lot easier to start, you know, bringing in um, the external grants to allow the organization to continue to grow. I'd agree with, with that. Um, getting the exposure, you know, um, getting people to know that you're there, what you offer, because it, 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 it does lead to, you know, making it easier. I shouldn't say easy. It's a, for lack of a better word, you know, to, to fundraise, to get people to pay attention to you, to say, you know what, I want to support you. And maybe they can't do it, but they put you in touch with the right organization, foundation, grant, you know, what, what have you. So the more you're out there and you can tell those stories, and that's why, you know, Beth, I gravitated to that story because it's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a success story. And that's what people want. You know, we have a, a very wealthy businessman here in Ferndale. He sold this company for a lot of money. And he's a tremendous person in the community. Advocates for children. But he told me, I don't support organizations. What I support is specific programs that have a track record that show results. And when you can show me results, he'll get behind it in a in big time way. And I, you know, I understood exactly what he was saying. You know, yeah, it would have been nice for him to write a nice check to us, you know, so that we could get our, our facility, you know, up and running. But at the same time, you know, uh, Beth, you have a lead on us. Jeff has a lead on us. We've got to show things to these people. And I think if we do that and stay true to our mission, um, it'll not be easy, but it will be easier to go out there and get the necessary funds to, to grow these programs and, you know, to expand them, you know, outside of this particular city. So... I agree with you. If a young and excited person came to you and and they wanted to make their own nonprofit working with people with disabilities in fitness or sports, what would you tell them? What advice would you give? Get started. <laughs> there's no I mean, there really there's no limit onto nonprofits and if you're passionate and you're motivated, it's going to work. I think everybody within the field of nonprofits believes in their organization. Um, they get those aha moments, those priceless experiences that money just can't describe. And, you know, 
everybody should be able to feel that and everyone should be able to participate in those organizations. So you have to start somewhere. And once you get started, if you have people that, you know, benefit from that organization, Todd, as you were saying, you know, get those success stories, Um, figure out that impact. How do you measure the impact that your organization has? And you'll grow from one person to 20,000. And that's where we're at now. So you just have to start somewhere and then just stay motivated. And if it's something you're passionate about, it's going to work. So from, from just what I've seen in the couple of years I've been involved with Azra and speaking with our executive director and, and some of the other folks uh, in advance of the podcast, um, one of them is where we've had a lot of success, where things have worked well, is, is also focus on, on sort of partnering as much as you can, find out who's out there that might be touching what you're interested in and and get to know them and they'll be a great resource. Like in our case, we would say with the rehab centers or the city of San Diego had a program going and, and felt they wanted to create a nonprofit. And we still work very closely with the city on a number of, a number of things. Um, and then the other piece of advice that I was given by uh, our, our program manager is to, if you find a group of potential disabled athletes, you know, this is going to sound maybe silly, but find out what they really are most interested in doing and then make that your first uh, focus area. What, are, what, is it, what is it that people would like to do? So um, in our case, I think probably basketball was one of the first ones. There was a lot of interest in it. So let's go out and create uh, a basketball program. Let's get some chairs. Let's find some courts that we can, uh, that we can rent. Um, so they're making sure that you're providing a service that there's already a little bit of, of demand for. And then and then after that, you can obviously grow and expand and try some new things. Well, I mean, um, I don't have much more to add to that, Scott. But, um, you know, I do, um, you know, what Beth had said resonates with me. You know, if it's if it's your passion, you know, you have the, the, the foresight, the energy to, to, to attack that passion, it, it'll work. Um, you know, for us, it was... It was an idea that was suggested, and when I heard it, I thought, you know what, that's a great idea. And I just thought, you know, because initially it wasn't a passion. You know, working with kids is a passion, but specifically working with kids with special needs. I mean, you know, if if uh, Todd's daughter, Amarisa, hadn't been born with an extra chromosome, would we be here talking to you folks? I, I can't say that we would, but you know what? It's become a passion. And the more we we get into it, we meet the families, we meet the participants, the loved ones, all these uh, you know uh, people like Jeff and Beth, and and seeing um, some of the amazing things that they're doing with their organizations, it it just increases that passion. I just I know we'll succeed. It's it's not a financial success. It's a, it's a business success. It's a model success. But it's a, it's it's doing something that uh, is desperately needed here in Michigan, and I'm I'm certain it's desperately needed throughout the United States. And, and uh, so, you know, there's no doubt that it's needed. Now we just, you know, we just got to keep working day at a time, one day at a time uh, to make it happen. But um, the passion is definitely there, as, as Beth said. If the passion's there, you know, just you make it happen. You jump in feet first. Well, I, I think as uh, Todd and Ball and as if you guys have stated, um, and Beth was mentioning, you know, when you work with these athletes, uh, for any length of time, it's it becomes an exercise in what's possible, um, and and when you watch some of these athletes overcome what they overcome, it's uh, it it gives you a little bit more encouragement that that there really isn't a challenge that that can't be met. 
All right, everyone. Uh, that's going to be the end of this segment of the podcast with nonprofits. Let me know what you thought about the history section. Hopefully next week we'll be back with another visitor and we'll talk a little bit more about the history and adaptive physical activity. Um, we are also going to start uh, advertising or taking sponsors. Uh, so contact me at scmactimer23 at gmail.com if you are interested in getting a spot on the show. Besides that, have a great week and we'll have the other episode out very shortly. Take care. Bye.